Our gospel lesson for this morning is found in John chapter 1. We are reading the first five verses. Listen to God's Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come this morning, we ask that you will grant us your light, that you will illumine our hearts and minds, that we see the face of Jesus Christ, overwhelm the darkness around us, and convince us of all of your good plans for us in him. We ask you to speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. As one of the more beloved authors of the 19th century, Mark Twain occupies a unique place in American culture. Originally, his name was Samuel Clemens. He went by the pen name Mark Twain, became popularly known by that. But he was wildly popular as a novelist, creating some of the most enduring characters of American history. People we know as Huck Finn, also Tom Sawyer. They were characters from... Twain's youth as a kid growing up on the Mississippi River. But in addition to this, he had a whole another career where he was a regular columnist. He was a traveling speaker. He wrote books about travel. He was clamored for around the world, extremely popular in the late 1800s. And it was Twain's humor and his wit that won him audiences and endeared him to them. It even allowed him to say controversial things, crisis in society. He was allowed to address through his wit and through his humor. But by the end of his career, just before his death, in the early 1900s, Twain's career took a notable shift. He had everything he needed at this point. But in the 1890s, he had lost two children And his third daughter was diagnosed with epilepsy. He traveled the world in search of a cure. They went across Europe attempting to see her healed. And then a few short years later, his beloved wife, Susie, also began to fail in her health. Everything around Mark Twain that he loved began to crumble. And there is a notable comparison that happens, that as his life begins to fall apart, his literary pursuits become darker and darker. He begins writing with a cynical edge, and the notable humor and wit that had endeared him to so many was now absent. Life had stolen this from Mark Twain. He was living in darkness. He was living in despair. And when we are honest, when we take a hard look at what life is, we can appreciate and understand what happened to Mark Twain. We all certainly have enough trouble and toil in this life that we know what darkness is. 
Our lives are filled with it. And the question for us this morning as we approach John's gospel is what are we to do with it? Are we just bound to descend into outrage and cynicism and to despair as Mark Twain did in the closing years of his life? In other words, does the darkness just win? Is that what happens because of the trouble and toil we face? Or is there something else? Is there another possibility for us? And this is where the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ that the Apostle John writes about. This is where this gospel intersects us. It intersects us and finds us in a troubled world, a world where there is real darkness. And you see here in these first opening verses something like a preamble to John's gospel, that God is not denying that there is darkness in this world that things are not as they were intended to be, that something has been stolen, something has been lost. This is all affirmed. But then what John contends and how God argues with us, found in verse five, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And this is the message of the Gospel of John, that darkness doesn't win, that light has done something to overcome it, that light shines and light shines perpetually, that Jesus Christ, who we discover is this light, prevails. And that's the purpose of the next chapters, that we will read all the way until Easter, when we end at the resurrection of our Lord Jesus, where the final victory of the light is proclaimed. And it's appropriate for us to begin this morning by asking and answering the simple question, why should you believe that the darkness will not win out? What's the first part of John's answer to that question? And in these five verses, he provides one very concise answer that we should believe that the darkness will not win out because God himself takes it upon himself to address the darkness. This is where John begins. In the beginning was the word. For those familiar with the Bible, you'll note that John's gospel begins in a very different way than the other three gospels we have, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those gospels are called the synoptic gospels. That means that they look at something together, that they looked perhaps from the same sources or perhaps they had one common gospel that they were sharing with and offering their various experiences and perspectives on Jesus. But there are many overlapping stories. The beginning of those gospels, start, they start this way. Mark begins with the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan after John the Baptist announces him. Matthew begins with a genealogy tracing Jesus back to Abraham. Luke begins with the birth story of Jesus and then goes to a genealogy that takes us back to Adam. But you see that John does something completely different. And it's because there were controversies in the early church that John was seeking to address. 
Many people were saying that Jesus was just an adopted son of God. He was such a good prophet and such a good and holy and righteous man that he was made the son of God at his baptism. John steps into the scene and you'll notice that he will speak of John the Baptist and he will get to Jesus' baptism. But he begins in a unique place. He says, no, that what's necessary to understand what God has done about the darkness is you have to know something about the character and the nature of God all the way in eternity past. And so he doesn't simply retreat to Abraham. He doesn't retreat to John the Baptist. He doesn't retreat to Adam. He retreats into eternity past, outside of time and space, where there was one being the eternally rich God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And John is saying that it is that God who is addressing the darkness. The one who has always existed, who's outside time and space, he has become light. He has entered into our troubled world in order to address it. And this is his argument to us. This is why we are to believe that the darkness will not win because light has come. And this light comes from eternity itself. And it was this light that formed all things, that gave everything its existence and continues to sustain it even today, that the creator of the world is that world's redeemer, that he's taken your cause He's taken my cause into his own hands. And friends, this is very different. This is unique when compared amongst the world's religions as to how the salvation of humanity and humanity's hope is played out. Because in the religions of the world, even though they vary in their details, they all present one common basis that we human beings are the source of our hope, that we are to find those resources inside of ourselves to improve ourselves and to improve our world. And Christianity doesn't give us that simple, facile answer. But it points that our one hope lies outside the world, in the nature of God, in the mysterious union of three persons and one being and that God has a plan in sending the word, Jesus Christ, the life and the light, to do something about the darkness. Now in the fifth grade, we had this awful event called Field Day. And it was always a kickball tournament that took place. And so you had to play with your homeroom, and my homeroom was handicapped that year. We didn't have good players. And so we were eliminated from the tournament. And as we were eliminated, there was one team that was particularly annoying. They had a young man uh, who had a mustache and was a good head taller than everyone else. He was supposed to be in the seventh grade. And Robbie Smith was crushing the kickball and leading his team to victory. They got to the championship game, they had eliminated my team and they lost. And as we were leaving the fields to return to the school, I said something I shouldn't have to one of my friends and they overheard it. And not just they overheard it, but he overheard it. 
Suddenly I was in that alternate reality thinking, how did this happen? Where people are circling around and Robbie Smith is saying that he was going to destroy me, which he could have. We made it back to the school, but I had to live with the rest of the day messages creeping through the school, Robbie's gonna get you on the way to the bus. And I didn't know what to do, I felt all alone and helpless. I had one good friend, young guy who had also probably was a few grades behind who had some size on him. His name was Derek Wooten. And the rumors began to circulate, Derek's got your back. I walk out of my final period to go to the bus and Derek is there to escort me. And I must say that I walked with a sense of pride and confidence to my bus. And when Robbie confronted us, Derek took over and the circle formed around them and I just escaped very quickly <laughs> to bus 282 <laughs> and went home to 104 Woodbury. I was very happy to be gone. And friends, my confidence that day was not rooted in myself. I was scared to death. But when those rumors, when that little secret began to wrap around the school that Derek Wooten was going to take on Robbie Smith, I was suddenly encouraged because Robbie was fierce, but Derek, nobody messed with him. And this is the way John begins his gospel. He wants to convince you that yes, the darkness is real. Your lives have toil and trouble and we will read of that trouble. It's the reality of sin and it's curse in our world. But that God himself has done something about it. That the word who was God and was with God in the beginning and formed all things has come into being and dwelled among us in order to address this darkness and to bring light and life to human beings who embrace the darkness rather than the light. That's his appeal. And the strength of your confidence is not based in your goodness. It's not based in your intellect. It's not based in your accomplishment. It's based in the fact that this very God, triune in nature, has done something about your dilemma and predicament of darkness. That's the great Christian hope that we unfold. And then inside of this monstrous statement, that God is dispelling the darkness. We're confronted with two implications that are important for us to consider. First is this, we discover the very limitations of the creation that God has given to us. Notice what John says, he was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him and without him, was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And this is replaying what we read in Genesis 1, that God made all things, and they were his good gift to human beings. The world was not evil, it was not stained, it's not somehow lesser. Rather, God says with repeated occasions in Genesis 1, it was very good that God loves the stuff of biology and chemistry. He loves the stuff of human beings and oceans and mountains and palm trees. That God loves and delights in all these things of physical creation. He made them and he lavished them on us. 
He made us rich before we were even born, placing us in this context and setting. But you notice that in verse four, it says, in him was life. And this is the fact about creation. It was designed with a particular purpose and intent. And it was through the creation that we were to delight ourselves in God, that the creation was always a means to to the author of it. It was never to be an end. But what happens in human sin is we take the good gift and we make it an end. We seek to find our meaning and our purpose in the created gifts themselves. And so we delight ourselves in a person, perhaps a spouse. We delight ourselves in an image. We delight ourselves in the abundance of creation, perhaps wealth or possessions. And we seek to find our meaning and our purpose bound up inside of that gift that God gives to us. This is the condition of sin. And the thing is, is that true life was never found there. St. Augustine, famous bishop of Hippo, had a large ministry in which he trained pastors how to preach, how to teach God's word, and the book now is called Teaching Christianity. It's a very helpful guide. As he's teaching young ministers how to diagnose and deal with the problems of the people in front of them, And in speaking about the trouble that we all face with the good gifts of creation, he uses this illustration. He says, the good gifts of creation are like a sailing vessel. They are given for the specific purpose of taking you on a destination, delivering you to a place. And he argues that God lavished us with such abundance and he gives us so many good things that they would deliver us to him that through all the bounty of creation, all that he provides for us in sustaining our lives, the gift of love and family and happiness, joy, all these things, that it would lead us to give thanks to him, to know him, to rejoice in him, because in him we live and we move and we have our being. This is what Augustine argues. It's like a vessel to deliver you to God. But he says the monstrous thing that we do is we become preoccupied with the vessel and we no longer focus upon the destination. The vessel becomes an end in and of itself. And friends, what we are to learn here is that creation has a purpose. It is not an end, it is a means. That the great end, Jesus Christ, is the one who formed it. He brought it into existence. And that we betray ourselves when we turn to the creation to find our life and our sustenance. When we look to the creation to give us what only he can give. In him was life. That's where it's always been found. And it's a fool's errand to go and try to find it elsewhere, to search it out, to try to discover it. We put a weight upon the creation that it was never designed to bear. A couple years ago, I was with Maria Densmore in Cuba, and we were driving across a 
the island and passed over some bridges as we approached Havana. And there was a beautiful scenic bridge over an inlet of some sort. And we were high up in the air and there was a sign and I saw one word, peligroso. I knew what that meant, danger. And I asked Maria what the rest of the sign meant. (laughs) And it said, basically drive at your own risk. The bridge is in disrepair. (laughs) Going 80 miles an hour, it was a little bit too late. That was Kurt Nelson's fault. Um, But we were committed. The bridge was insufficiently designed to uphold modern vehicles and the weight and pressure that would be put on them. And that's what we do. When we look to creation to sustain us, to find our meaning in these things that God gives us to enjoy, but when we look to them for too much, you crush it, you destroy it. And that's why we end up with despair and emptiness. This is what darkness is. It's being separated from the true meaning of life. And so we discover the limitations of creation here. Now the second thing we discover is we also discover the limitations of sin. Verse five culminates this preamble, dramatic fashion. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Because what John argues here and what we'll see over these next chapters is that the light is the eternal Son of God, the Word of God. All things were made through Him. Not an adopted Son, not one who came to be, not one who chose or elected to be the Son of God. He was God in the flesh, and He came among us. And that the darkness, it will fight, it will clamor, it will claw but it will be overcome. It's an interesting passage in John chapter 13 where Judas, out of his own self-interest, betrays Jesus. It's in verse 30. It says, so after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. It's intriguing because John is the only writer of the Gospels to add that little detail, and it was night. Why did he do so? It's certainly a moral commentary on Judas's character, indicating what he had chosen. He had rejected the light. But even Judas in his betrayal that led to Jesus's death, when the disciples were thinking everything was now undone, it had come apart, everything was unglued. After three years, this light was being extinguished when Jesus died because of what Judas did. But then on the resurrection accounts, you find the first day at first light, Jesus walking out of the tomb. The light prevails. And as Christians who live, who inhabit a toilsome and troublesome world where there is real darkness, there is darkness that we commit, there's darkness we see in structures, There is darkness we even learn in cosmic realms that we can't even fully understand. Sometimes we're most frightened by those who don't see it. Darkness is real, but there's a limitation to it. 
And that is the great hope of the gospel, friends, is that God can extinguish the darkness and God has extinguished the darkness and God will extinguish the darkness once and for all because the light shines from eternity through the history of the world to its culmination. That's the beauty of God from the beginning. He will not fail. Don't allow the darkness to win. Light prevails. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we all feel the power and the presence of darkness in our world, in our own very hearts. And so to hear on this Sunday morning that light prevails, that light dispels the darkness, that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, who is with you before the foundations of the world, has entered into the world to affect all of these things. We rejoice and we give thanks. Grant us a deeper and further knowledge of him during this Advent season and capture us inside of what he is doing in your world. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.